Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. And for the truth that has already been proclaimed this morning, sometimes you got to lose a little religion to find a real faith. And today we find ourselves in the midst of our fifth conversation out of six, part number five out of six in a series that we've been calling Losing My Religion. We've been looking at data that has come to us from very trusted sources, research that's been done to show us why it is that so many are leaving organized religion in droves over the last several uh, decades, but especially in the U.S., leaving the U.S. church. And these past few weeks, we've been attempting to, well, to humble ourselves. And recognize according to the data, according to what they who are leaving are telling us, that in many ways the church itself has become a bit culpable in part of the reasons why people have left. Sometimes we have behaved badly. And these few weeks we've attempted to, in a spirit of humility, simply confess, yeah, there have been some times When we have created the problem, we've been more of the problem than the solution. And we who say we are people of the way have just been in the way. At times we have raised our children so overprotectively that we teach them to fear and be suspicious of everything outside these walls. When God created everything outside these walls with intrigue and beauty and wonder, and yet they leave because... We present them a faith that is too easy and too safe and too predictable. We've talked a little bit about how at times the church has been on the wrong side of history. But there have been seasons when we have been for some things we should have been against and we have been against some things that we should have been for. There have been times when we are so sure of ourselves that we have created a, a system of certitudes where there's no room at all to doubt or question or, or maybe deconstruct some of the inherited faith that we received in order to reconstruct a faith that's actually ours. And each week I'm attempting to highlight one of the reasons that we're learning people are walking away from religion, but one of the most powerful sources of hope that drives me through this series is that amid all that we are learning about why those are leaving, who are leaving, we're discovering that while they may be leaving religion, they are not necessarily leaving faith. That there is still a God-given drive for something that connects us to transcendence, to something holy, to something true and beautiful and good. There's still a deep human hunger to be transformed and renewed to have relationships mended and reconciled, to be a part of, well, a community of belonging where I can just be me and you be you and we're both imperfect and unfinished and God works on both of us at the same time. 
And if that's true, and I believe with my whole heart that it is, that gives me hope because it gives us an opportunity to be a part of something that God may be up to in the lives of all humankind. So, we've been attempting to hold some data up alongside some sacred scripture. And in a spirit of humility, we've asked, what must we do, God? Show us how we must repent, change in our ways, in our thinking, so that we might be part of something that you're up to in the world. And each week we're focusing on one particular reason some are leaving. And today, it's a very simple one, and it shouldn't surprise any of us really, We're told that one of the reasons many people walk away from from church and never return is because they just weren't that religious in the first place growing up. That's not rocket science, right? But the words that are used in the research and the data reflect something like this. If your family was unaffiliated or marginally affiliated with church growing up, the likelihood of you walking away when you become an adult is very high. If I wanted to put it another way, I would simply say this. If you don't build the foundation of faith, there's nothing to build a life upon. I mean, we know what the writer of the Proverbs has told us. There is wisdom in the reality that you raise up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it, right? We know this, but we also know that the corollary is true. If you don't, Raise up a child in the way they should go. When they are old, don't be surprised when they only show up at Christmas and Easter. The scripture today is about laying a foundation of faith. One that is firm and true and real. And it comes to us from the words of Jesus. At the end of the gospel, uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 we find in verse 24, these words of Jesus, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Beloved, it's not a surprise that every church everywhere in the history of ever has had families who are marginally involved. That's just kind of how we're wired. And when they are marginally involved, every generation that I've ever known, you have known families who are a little bit in and a little bit out. And it's no surprise that when the kids grow, they're not attached, right? That's not a surprise, but here is what's different today. Never before are the stakes higher. Never before have they been higher for families who are marginally involved in faith formation because today, unlike any generation in the history of our species, this generation is more saturated by the constant influx of flashy, attractive, 
glittering other options that are constantly, perpetually, day and night, competing for the mind's attention and the heart's affection of our children. Nonstop, nonstop, never before have the reins of technological oversaturation fallen so hard. Never before have the floods of distraction and overconsumption risen so rapidly. Never before have the winds of exponential change and societal evolution blown and beat against the house of an entire generation as they are blowing and beating today. And if we don't do something, if we don't teach our children and our grandchildren how to build the foundation of the house of their faith upon the rock, we will watch the house of an entire generation collapse. And great will be its fall. Already you know because of stats that I've shared with you these past several weeks that right now, I take a snapshot right now, today in the U.S., 30% of the U.S. are what we call nuns, unaffiliated. They are they who do not affiliate with any particular religion. But if you dig down deeper into one of our generations, Generation Z, 49% of Generation Z today is unaffiliated, not affiliated with any particular religion at all. That's today. That means those who were born between 1997 and about 2012, 13, 14, the children and youth in our children and youth programs and early college students right now are at about 49% none. But according to the Public Religion Research Institute, by the year 2050, hold on to your hats for a moment, by the year 2050, 20 years, 30 years from today, from 2020. Generation Z, 35 million Generation Z will leave the religion that raised them. Will you let that seep into the soil for just a moment? Between now and 2050, 35 million of those who are currently in church will walk away from faith. Just to put that into a little bit of perspective, I want you to think of every, since 1997, every child we ever dedicated on this stage, every child that ever went to vacation Bible school between 97 and 2015, every child who we presented first grade Bibles to up here and who went to Passport Kids Camp and Passport Camp and came to Sunday school and sat in our Bible studies and went to fall retreat and spring retreat or winter retreat. Every child or youth in that era, I want you to imagine that more than half of them will walk away from church before they reach 40. Beloved, that in my pastor's heart constitutes something of an emergency. So this morning, I want to talk for just a moment about what do you do when my religion is a house built on sand? What do you do when my religion is a house built on sand? But first, we want to begin with some good news. 
See, it's easy to get so overwhelmed by all the statistics that are so daunting. They are sobering the realities that really kind of intimidate us at the rate at which many are leaving the faith. And it might be possible to despair to the degree that we almost give up hope for this next generation. Beloved, God has not given up hope on Generation Z. God, in fact, more than that, stronger than that, we may be thinking about this whole thing wrong. It might be if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the feet to walk where we've never been before, we might just see that this subversive God we worship may be up to something in this particular generation that God could never have been up to in any of the generations prior. I mean, half of us in this room don't know how to update the software on our iPhones. Come on. But it may be that in this curious generation that sometimes we don't understand and sometimes frustrates us, it may be that God is up to something through which the the kingdom of God can only be established through these, our youngest. We're also told, as a very... um, smoothly walk down the stairs to get my water. <laughs> Don't let the camera come off of me because the other room is watching too as he saunters back into the light and wets his parched whistle. He proclaims because Baptists are, as Bill Self says, water-powered. <laughs> the truth of the matter is that same research Source Public Religion Resource Institute says, but hang on, yes, 35 million will walk away from church by 2050. But if we can stem the tide, if we can go back to the retention rates of just 20 years ago, when we were trying to hang on to Generation X, if we can just go back 20 years and do what we must to hang on, it's possible that we retain and welcome into the faith 16 million of that 35 million. That means if we do what we must do, if we have the courage to go where we must go to help build a foundation of faith upon those, for those who are potentially leaving, we may be able to have 16 million new believers and those who are believers remain believers as they continue to grow. And I just want to put that in perspective. That is more than the first and second great awakening, more than the Azusa Street revivals, and more than every Billy Graham crusade combined. Do you realize the opportunities that we have ahead of us are of exponential proportion? But it means that we we got to... We got to muster the congregational courage to change. Now, there are today six shifts that I believe that we must make in order to create an environment where they stay around long enough to build a foundation of faith that will last a lifetime. There are six shifts that must, we must make. Now, there are about a hundred in my heart that God has put on my heart, but you probably will want to go to lunch at some point today. There are six, three of them are for the church at large, three shifts that must be made in the church at large in the U.S., two shifts 
Then I want to speak directly to parents of Gen Z, and I'm going to include Gen Alpha, those who are the youngest babies, the ones we're dedicating these last two or three years. I want to speak two shifts that must happen with parents who are in this room and the Family Life Center and watching online, and then there is one shift that I want to direct specifically at my friends who are Gen Z. Three shifts for the church, three, two shifts for parents of Gen Z, and one shift for Gen Z. Ready? Here we go. The very first shift that we must make in the church in order to retain Gen Z and create a foundation of faith that lasts a lifetime is we've got to change from being attractional to relational. We've got to move from attractional to relational. Now, after World War II, this nation shifted from becoming a, a, uh, a nation of industry and manufacturing. We became an industry of consumer goods. We became consumers and the peddling of consumer goods and products. And with it, our mindset shifted to the consumer mind. And we didn't check that consumer mind at the door of the church. So we began to think of church as the place where we must create the product that is as tr attractive enough to draw those who might go to another church if we're not careful. So we have to build the greatest buildings and the finest facilities. And we better hire the best musicians and the golden-tongued preachers of the age because our folks can listen on the radio and listen to that preacher down the road. And if we're not careful, they'll get in the car and go down the road. So let's attract them by doing all we can to lure them and their consumer hearts to worship here. And it worked for the better part of the last half of the 20th century. So we create all these programs and, and we create facilities and, and industries within the church to draw and we get fantastic personalities with a bit of flair in the pulpit. <laughs> in other places, you know, other places. And we say, hey, let's, here's an idea. Let's build like a family, I don't know, like a family uh, life uh, like center. And we can create all the programs so that you don't have to go anywhere to get anything else. We'll attract you here so that your children, dial in parents, so that your children are so happy when they come to church that they feel like they're going to Disney. We've literally said those words. And we build our own little six flags over Jesus right here. Mm-hmm. And it attracts for a little while until it doesn't. And if you have to attract to draw, you have to attract to keep. And here's news for you. This generation I'm talking about is not attracted to the things we think attract them. They, 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 they don't, they're not impressed easily. I mean, Generation Z has at their disposal access and ever-growing access to the greatest personalities on the planet, the most wonderful entertainers on the planet. In fact, the social movements of the age that actually get stuff done, they can participate in, in the living room, on their phone. There is nothing that we can do on our soccer field that will attract them to be engaged more than what they can do on their own on their phone. The reason we have to move from attractional to relational is because they're not looking to be attracted, but they are looking for something. They are looking for something that they want, they need, they hunger for it, they are compelled by it, and it is relationships. 
relationships. Do you realize when this generation was asked, what makes up the perfect church? They had an answer. Wait for it. 81% said the perfect church, the number one answer of a perfect church, what does it include? 81% of them said community. I'm talking about these cats who were born after 1997 said, I'm not looking for the lights and the smoke and the bells and the whistles. I'm not compelled by the bells and whistles that used to compel the generations before me. Give me a relationship that is real. Give me a community in which somebody sees me and I see them. And we don't pretend to be fake. We don't project with one another because I do all the projecting I want online. That's my business online is to project. I need something that is more firm than that. So, Kenda Creasy Dean said, you know, all students are really looking for one thing, for someone to become a mirror to them, to hold up a mirror to them. How am I doing? How am I looking? What am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Am I doing okay? And in the absence of true relational mirrors of authenticity and intimacy with real people, they will find a house of mirrors at every turn who will tell them what they ought to become. And if we don't move from attractional to relational, we will lose a generation. And worse than that, they will lose the hope that it's possible to be known by someone who will be patient with them and love them and help them construct a foundation that will last past graduation. Beloved, we have to become a relation-driven church because disciples are made in no other way. There is no other way to make a disciple but to come together and say, I here is my imperfection. Where is yours? Here's where I'm unfinished. Where are you? And for our students to know adults who are willing to be that confessional in a spirit of mutual vulnerability to say, it's okay. It's going to be okay because I've been where you are too. So when Annie and Robin, our youth pastor and our children's pastor, come to you and say, hey, we need some volunteers in the youth program. They're not just looking for some warm bodies to plug holes. They are looking because they see something in you that they want to rub off on their students. So when they come and ask you, don't pray about it. Just say, yeah, I don't pray about it. No, say yeah and pray on your way to the event. <laughs> Feet can be prayer. Presence can be prayer. We need to move from attractional to relational. The second move that we have to make in the church, if we're going to retain a generation long enough to build a foundation of faith that endures the rain falling and the floods rising and the winds blowing, is that we have to shift from being presumptuous to inquisitive. Man, it's easy to make assumptions about this generation, isn't it? But the worst thing that you can do for a relationship is be presumptuous about the other person. I mean, if I were to say to you, do you know me? And you think you know me because I talked to you for like 30 minutes on a Sunday or 40. That's not knowing, that's presuming to know. It requires inquiring. And we make so many presumptions upon this generation because we look at them and here's what we see. 
We say, well, they're always on the phone. They're always disconnected. They're so entitled. They want something for nothing. They never really give me their full attention because here's what we do. We have an encounter with one of them or a few of them, and then we impose our generational biases upon them and assume that if they're constantly on their phone, they're never connected to anybody. They don't know what a real relationship is. But I don't know anymore if that's true. Here's what I'm learning. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, sorry, Gen Z, you drive me crazy too. I mean, I've got two of them in college. I raised two of them. And sometimes I just want to strangle them. We got an argument at a restaurant one day. We were at Grub Burger, which is a, which is a, a counter service. You go up to, to pay. You pay for your food. You get your own drink. You get your own napkin. If you want another drink, you go back and get your own refill. You take your own tra- You do your own thing. But at the end, they have the audacity to turn the thing around. How much would you like to tip? I'm like, tip? And we in this conversation, this argument with my boys at lunch, and I thought we were just going to throw down because they have a different way of seeing the world than I do. I, I get it. It's sometimes confusing and much of the time frustrating. Laura and I were in Birmingham a couple of years ago, and when we left this hotel, I left a sport coat in the closet of our room. Now, we get halfway back to Atlanta. My son Nathan's there, so I'm going to call and see if maybe uh, somebody at the, the hotel can get my coat. I call, and it's a Gen Zer, like an older Gen Zer, uh, answering the phone. Hey, I left my jacket, I think, in like room 212. Could you check and see? You know, we can't do that. What do you mean you can't do? Can you have like housekeeping go? No, there's already a guest in there. Can you have housekeeping maybe just knock on the door and ask the guest to look? No, that wouldn't be appropriate. So let's try a different tactic. Okay, I'll tell you what. Um, Hey, let's start over. Hey, I'm from Pizza Hut. Room 212 ordered a pizza. Can you connect me to them so I can tell them that their pizza is here? I can ask them myself. No, we can't do that. Why why can't you do that? It's against our policy. What policy? HIPAA. (laughs) HIPAA? I couldn't even. I said, thank you. Well, I'll figure something out. You know, we figured it out. I get it. Some days I say to myself, this is the last generation. Our species will not survive another. I get it. But man, the longer I talk to them, and more important, the the longer I listen to them, they have a way of being in the world that's so very different than mine. But here's the thing. They have such a propensity for community and for inclusion and for diversity, even to the point it makes some of us uncomfortable. And yet I wonder in the world that is coming, if the kingdom of God requires people with the capacity to enter into that world in ways that I'm not even comfortable entering into the world. Do you see what I'm saying? So we got to move from presumptuous to inquisitive that we might ask them, where are you getting these thoughts? Can you tell me more? Do your friends believe this way too? So how does this look if applied in a different way? We become inquisitive. Is this why Jesus, in the 19th chapter of Matthew, is listening to these adults, these grown-ups, these gin, whatever else they were, talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, hang on a minute, can I just... And he pulls a child from the margin of their attention into the center of their consciousness and says to them, unless all of you repent, metanoia, 
change the way you see life, change what you do, unless you change how you think and become like a child, like this generation, you will not see the kingdom. And during this series, for the first time ever, I, I thought about that passage in a way I've never thought about it before. I thought about it this way. What if that's how the kingdom is always entering? It's always entering in such a way that it's just beyond those who are currently running the world to recognize. And maybe it requires the eyes of the next generation to see in ways that sound so strange to me, that seem so foreign to me, and yet maybe the kingdom won't be seen unless seen through their eyes. I don't know. I just think one of the shifts we got to make is from being presumptuous to asking more questions, becoming inquisitive of this generation who is amazing to watch grow. Third shift. There is a third shift that I believe that the church must put into action if we are going to retain a generation long enough to build a foundation for them to have a faith that endures the rain falling and the, the floods rising and the winds blowing. And the third shift is we got to move, church, from coddling to calling. From coddling to calling. Do you realize that this generation has a basic mistrust of institutions anyway? And that's okay. It's kind of good. But they mistrust institutions that have particular authority because those with authorities seem to presume upon those who are not in authority what the rules are and how the world works. And here's how to navigate what's ahead. And that's not only crippling to them, it is offensive. Because this generation has always known how to find what they want, when they want it, where they want it. They can easily access anything they're looking for without my help. And as such, if we coddle children, if we spoon feed them little bite-sized portions that you hear, just open up. You, just, you can't take too much. This is too much for you. Too much for solid food. Just, just chew it up. You got some on your chin. You're good, good. Here comes the choo-choo, a little bit of Jesus at a time. If we coddle them, they will not only be crippled and malnourished spiritually, but they will be offended. And you know what you do when you're offended? You walk away. We have to call them because here is what is in my heart today. The kingdom of God is in them and on them. It is in them and it is on them to further it in the life that they will live. The kingdom is in them and on them. And can I tell you what that looks like? Back during the holidays, the boys are in. We've got a senior and a sophomore in college. And we're out by the back fire. We have a fireplace in the back. The three of us are having our conversation back there, have a fire going. It's fantastic. We decided that night, we're going to decide which is the worst generation. We did. We did. And we agreed. And I'm not revealing to you what we agreed upon. But in the midst of the conversation, something interesting happened. It really, it was profound to me. In the midst of the conversation about all the different generational nuances between all of us, Jackson, my sophomore in college, said, you know, Dad, I think, I really think that many of the people in my generation believe that we are the most self-aware of all the generations. And it struck me for a moment. He's telling the truth. He said, we believe that we're the most self-aware because we have such access to everything, everywhere, all the time, always. 
We're aware of where one another is. We are aware of jokes that have already been made into memes like a year ago by the time, Dad, you're posting it on Facebook. We are already aware of all these things. We are so self-aware. And I said, well, hang on. That intrigues me because it scares the mess out of me, Jackson, because here's the thing. How are you going to talk about self-aware? Every generation has to come to a place of becoming self-aware, and every one of us learn through hard knocks. We learn through difficult childhoods. We learn through, learn through poverty. We learn through suffering. We learn through the high school bully or the, the middle school bully that, that teaches you something on the playground. We all come to some sense of self-awareness, but you are the first generation in the species who has never been on the pursuit of self-awareness without 10,000 opinions every second of the day being poured into you. This is who you are. Talk about Kenda Creasy Dean and the mirrors you hold up. Here's a mirror. This is who you are. No, this may be who you are. You know what? Your parents are kind of hard on you right now. This is why. This is your identity. This is what's going on. This is why you're so sad. And with a house of mirrors, a whole generation, how in the world could they possibly know which reflection in the house of mirrors is real and a distortion? And talk about building a foundation of faith of self-awareness on which self? Beloved, do you realize what a, what a burden this is for them to bear? And I said that to Jackson, and he, in a poignant moment, he said, then what do I do? What do I do? I mean, I want to be a part of what fixes this for my friends and my generation. I want to be a part of the solution. What do I do? And in a rare moment of reserve on my part, <laughs> I had about a five-second window to not give an answer, but to inquisitively say, I don't know. That's on you, bro. So go and figure this out for all of us. Lead us in the way so we can help. See, the kingdom of God is in them and on them. We can't coddle them. We must call them to live into their identity as those who have been given the divine flame of God. Do you remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy? Therefore, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. If the church would stop attracting, but start relating. If we stop presuming, but start inquiring. If we stop coddling, but start calling them. There may be something compelling enough to stick around. Now, those are the three movements, the shifts that have to happen in the church. And I have three more, two for parents and one for Gen Z. I am fully aware of the time, but beloved, you are welcome to find your leave. But I'm just asking you to give me a little bit more time. If you give me about five minutes, I'll give five minutes. And that makes 10 minutes. Because parents, I've got a word for you too. It's an important one. I know you love your kids. I know you'd die for your kids. But the one shift that you need to make, there are two. The first one is this. You gotta move from solo to village. You're not meant to do this on your own. And I know that we've set up 
the whole structure to make you think that you're supposed to. Because even if you wanted to admit that you're vulnerable and you're afraid and not sure how well you're doing, even if you were willing to admit, we set it up in such a way that you can't because parenting these days is a competitive sport. In this highly comparison-driven, cutthroat sport that we call parenting, it's hard to, hard to admit you, you might be a little bit out of your league. And you would tell your parents, but they're already criticizing you for not doing it the way they did it. And you might tell your best friend, except the problem is you're about to tell her, but you just noticed on her Instagram feed, she posted a long stream of perfectionism projected into the world as if, yeah, as if being a parent is, is a cakewalk. And I, so I can't tell her because she looks like she's got it figured out. So I must suffer on my own. And I'm, I'm not even talking about anything major. I'm talking about the, the, the daily grind of parenthood. I'm talking about how early is too early to give a phone and, and how do I monitor and mitigate the screen time? And do I put them on Life 360 when they drive or do I just trust that they're going to go where they say they're going? And how do I mitigate all the raging hormones and the mood shifts and the swings? And, and how do I help mitigate the, the first love and the first breakup? Not to mention an overwhelming feeling of despair that I carry in my chest all the time because my child is chronically anxious and is a part of a, a generation that is the most anxious generation in history. And I've done everything I can to make the unhappy go away and I can't figure out how to make them happy and I'm about to lose my mind and I can't tell anybody. And now suddenly you're supposed to single-handedly build a foundation upon their faith so that they can build their foundation on the rock so that when they're 25, they don't walk away from church. You're not meant to do it alone. You need your church. You need your church because the church is meant to be the body of Christ with arms that are wide enough to embrace all those who are afraid, who are failing, who are nervous, who are anxious, who are overwrought with fear. We are supposed to be a community that brings support to those who are suffering, comfort to those who are afraid. You need your church to raise your kids with you. It's time to move from solo to village, but I'm not talking about just showing up at church. I mean, when you show up at church, be at church. What I mean by that is be you. Don't pretty yourself up so much that when it comes time to, to share how you're doing, you just, oh, it's great. Kids are doing great. I'm doing great too. So happy. I just love parenthood. I love middle school. It's amazing. You know, it's just uh, enough with it. But to show up in a community of mutual vulnerability. So when it comes time to prayer requests at Sunday school, enough with the, yeah, you know, my cat has like a cold. And I'm just so, and, and by the way, I just want to give a praise because I was at Costco and I was praying for like a space up front and the Lord's favor just fell upon me because enough. I'm talking about you need your church to help you find your feet when you can barely muster the energy to get out of bed in the morning. So when it comes time to prayer time, prayer requests, how about I don't know if I am going to make it another week. 
I feel like I'm losing my husband. I feel like I don't even know my wife anymore. I feel like my children are so sad and the only thing I can do to explain it is that it's my fault. And if you can't do that in Sunday school or in small group or over dinner with friends that you find at church because it's competitive, I know, some of you need to turn around and look and find somebody with some gray hair in this room or blue hair or no hair because I can promise you this while they don't know a thing about raising a child in a digital age they have parental scar tissue of their own They've been through depression and recession. They've raised children through wars. They've seen their kids divorce and come off of drugs and get back on drugs. And they have something that nobody else can offer you. The relationship that you share with Christ that says we are a work in progress. Beloved, every time that we dedicate children up here, I ask all of you, I say, hey, these children up here, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous, aren't you? And you're like, mm, they're so sweet. Mm. And, I, and I'll say things like, do you covenant to be the church for them, to be a, a family of faith that will come behind them and support them and pray for them? Will you volunteer in their programs? Will you come up to them and say, you look a little tired. Do you need a date night? Can I keep your kids? I say all these things, and, I, and then you say, yes, we will. But from time to time, the parents of children and youth today need a reminder that they are not alone. So I'm gonna do something right now, right where you are, sitting right where you are. If you are not a parent of someone in our children and youth ministry or in college, and you've already launched yours or you never had any, I want you to let them know, on the count of three, I'm gonna ask you a question and I want you to say these words, we've got your back. We've got your back, and, but I don't want you to reply unless you actually mean it. So the volume to which you respond, we've got your back, moms and dads, is what I want to hear. One, two, three. We've got your back. One, two, three. We've got your back. One more time. One, two, three. We've got your back. Where else are you going to get that? That's church, and that's why you got to move from solo to village, that we may raise your children with you in the love and admonition of the Lord. The second shift you got to make is you got to shift from the short game to the long game. We make the mistake of parenting in the short game. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure they're happy today, and hopefully they'll be happy for the same reasons tomorrow, and they won't. Years ago, I'm with a buddy of mine in Orlando. We're having breakfast at a cafe, and we're both new dads, and we decided that a mission statement is needed for dadhood. He had one, and I adopted it right away. The mission statement I had as a dad is to become unnecessary. That sounds cold and calculating, but I want them to learn how to tie the shoe when it's time, how to change the oil when it's time, how to stand up for themselves and for somebody who can't stand up for themselves. I want to teach them to become world citizens in a way that is not dependent upon me anymore. So how much more so is that true in their building of a foundation of faith? But you can't build a foundation of faith for your children and become unnecessary in that degree unless you get them here. Unless you think about the long game. 
Because it doesn't happen on occasion from one Sunday and then maybe three months later another Sunday. It takes the accumulation of the, the culminating muscle memory that is developed by bringing them among people who need to be around them and who they need to be around. You're developing the sinews and the, the muscle fibers that later will become the muscle memory that they will go to so that eventually when they are 25 and beyond, you know, there's something in me aching to get together with people not like me. People who are older and younger, whose skin is lighter or darker, who have different opinions about things, but one thing in common, that they're being transformed by Christ just like I am. And I have this need and I, I can't stop. And so to build a foundation of faith requires parents to move from the short game to the long game. That means, listen, Laura King was a single mother our entire child-rearing days during Sundays. During the week, I did all kinds of great things. I was a great dad, I hope. But on Sundays, I never got the kids ready. I'm at church by like five or six. And, and so as a single mom, do you think that just because she's a preacher's wife, that the, the kids got up in the morning, oh, we're so ready for Jesus today. And we just, we want to study the word. And we just, mom, can we go early and stay late? No, most mornings was like Laura saying to them, get your butt in the car or I will wear it out. You know, I say that to say to you, we don't let them choose our pediatrician. We don't let them choose our dentist. And if, if you do, there are bigger problems to talk about. Why would we leave this decision to them? Beloved parents of children and youth, if you bring them. We will partner with you to the best of our ability because we've got your back. One, two, three. <laughs> Last shift. And this one is to our youth. To Generation Z. Because some of you are old enough to be dialed into what I'm talking about right here. We know you're so misunderstood. We didn't grow up in the way that you grew up. We didn't grow up in the context in which you are currently growing up. We didn't navigate the waters that you are having to navigate on a daily basis. We know that you are so saturated by everything, everywhere, all the time, that it's like a weight that can be burdening your heart so there is one move, one shift for you. There could be a hundred, but I want you to think of one move, one shift that you gotta make in order to build a foundation of faith. You gotta shift from saturation to silence. Now that is easier said than done. But what I mean is you are constantly saturated by so much, so many stimuli at all turns and at every moment that at times it's a little bit exciting. I mean, I know the dopamine rush that I get when I get a notification on my phone. Oh, somebody's thinking about me. I get that too. In fact, I've changed my ringtone to the Beatles, the song Help, because as an Enneagram 2, I need to help people. And so if you're calling me, Jeff, call me and the word help will come up. I'm like, oh, great, dopamine, feeling great now. I get it, but there's a difference, beloved, between 
being a part of something. Oh, they're thinking about me. And overnight, 30, 40, 50 notifications that come on your phone while you're sleeping. Then you wake up the very next morning, already before your feet hit the ground, you feel like you are behind. You already feel like you're losing and the day hasn't even begun. And I'm saying to you, the shift that you've got to make is from saturation to silence because only when you create some space for some silence to hush, to hush the noise, can you recognize the holy? Because the holy will not scream over the noise. The holy speaks in a still small voice. The prophet Habakkuk said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. But what I want you to know, Gen Z, is that you are the temple of God. Do you not know, Paul says, that you are the the temple of God, the, the abiding place of the Most High? So to hush the temple of you will require moving away from saturation into silence where every day there is some moment in that day when it is just you and the one who made you. You're like, well, I won't be able to concentrate. I'll be thinking, I know. But there are ways to discipline yourself so that it is only you and the one who made you to be reminded on a daily basis of your intrinsic worth, your beauty, and and how valuable you are to him. Our youth ministry, when we go... To passport camp. Passport has a, a rule that you can't bring phones, you can't do the digital stuff, and, and not all the churches play by those rules, but ours does. So Pastor Annie takes up all the phones and on retreat in the fall and retreat in the, in the, in the winter uh, or the spring, she takes them up and consistently after every experience, she has one or two or three kids come up to her and say, that was kind of nice. Jesus said, Come unto me, all who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. So to my Generation Z brothers and sisters, the move for you to concentrate on today is a move from saturation to silence so that you may find the rest that can only come through Christ. And I can promise you one thing, Pastor Robin with our children and Pastor Annie with our youth, They are working on teaching our children how to do just that. Come tonight, youth, and you're talking about a discipline called Lexio Divina and silence where you're able to learn how do I shut out the noise to be quiet long enough to know that there's something beyond the noise. And if we do that, beloved, if the church learns to move from attractional to relational, if we move from presumptuous to inquisitive, if we move from coddling to calling and parents, if you move from solo to village and move from the short game to the long game and students, if you move from saturation to silence, then bring on the rain. Let the rains fall where they may. Let the floods rise as they may. Let the winds blow and beat against the house because you will stand because the foundation will be on the rock. Amen.